A growing problem facing the church today is what to do about sexual immorality among Christians. This is a sermon I was scheduled to preach last week, but as you know, I put it off because the kids would be in here. But today we are brought to the text that forces us to deal with it. And there is a problem in the church today. It's not uncommon to hear of ministers having affairs, pedophile priests, church leaders leaving their wives or husbands, Christian couples living together outside of marriage, and Christian kids being involved in illicit sexual activities. Now, all of this is in violation of scriptural teaching and is unquestionably sinful. So what should the church do when faced with this sort of thing? That's a question few of us like to consider, but one that must be addressed. And while some things are getting worse, there was something going on in the Corinthian church that wouldn't even be tolerated in our permissive society today. And I think setting an example for us to follow, the Apostle Paul deals with it head on in the often ignored fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians. He jumps right in by saying, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Something was going on in the church at Corinth that even the pagans didn't condone. Now, that had to be something. Corinth, you may recall, was the sex capital of the Roman world. Aphrodite was worshipped there with the aid of a thousand temple prostitutes. And the expression to Corinthianize meant to indulge in illicit sexual behavior. Adultery and fornication were accepted, even expected in Corinth. But the Corinthian pagans didn't condone incest. Even sexual activity between family members who weren't related by blood. And it was, in fact, prohibited by Roman law. Someone in the church, however, had taken his father's wife, his stepmother, and had openly entered into a sexual relationship with her. This was common knowledge. The church knew about it. It was the talk of the town, and Paul had even heard about it in Ephesus. So what was the church doing about it? Were they responding appropriately? Or were they responding at all to sin in the church? Were they addressing it head on? Were they ignoring it, hoping it would go away? Were they even praying about it, trying to discern how to best handle it? Well, I think you'll be shocked by their response. Verse 2. 
and you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. Surprisingly, the church had responded with arrogance. They had become arrogant about the situation. The word means puffed up. Now, what in the world would they be puffed up about? Surely it wasn't that they were proud of what the man was doing. No, I think it'll become clear as we continue the passage. They were proud of themselves. They were proud of their tolerant attitude. Their, as they viewed it, maturity in accepting this situation. They probably thought they were handling it very well indeed. That they recognized that we are all sinners and that in God's eyes this man was no worse than the lady who gossiped in church or the accountant who juggled figures at tax time. They were pleased with themselves that that they could handle this sticky situation so calmly. They didn't let it upset them. They didn't overreact. You know, some churches would have overreacted in, in self-righteous condemnation. They would have been shocked and, and horrified and ignoring any sin in their own life. They would have branded this man as the grossest of sinners beyond the reach of forgiveness and redemption and banished him forever to the realms of Satan. Obviously, that would have been wrong. But so was their response. No, Christ was compassionate with sinners and taught us to be forgiving with one another But he never condoned sin. He never accepted it and said, well, go ahead. Everybody sins in one way or another. No, Paul said they should be mourning about the situation. Mourning as if a brother had died. Mourning because someone they loved had fallen into sin's trap. And it stopped trying to get out of it. And mourning because action was going to have to be taken. Action that would cause pain and hurt and be extremely unpopular with everyone involved. This brother was going to have to be disciplined. And that is never easy to do. But there is a time for discipline. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, With the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan 
for the destruction of his flesh. Paul had determined it was time for discipline in this matter. It had already gone on far too long. And Paul wasn't waiting until he got there in person to see to it that something was done about it. The church hadn't taken care of it. And the situation was one that needed decisive action immediately. Through insight, Paul had been given into the situation by the Holy Spirit. And with the full authority of an apostle, Paul said the man was to be removed from their midst. He was to be excommunicated. Now, as a rule, excommunication is not the first step to take when sin is discovered in the church. In fact, Jesus outlined a procedure for us to follow when dealing with a sinful brother in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. And to keep us from assuming Paul's directive to the Corinthians mandate how we are to deal with sin in the church, let's take a careful look at what Jesus had to say as well. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Jesus said if we see a brother sinning, we have an obligation to go to him and privately reprove him. We are our brother's keeper in this matter. You know, if you saw a child playing with matches next to a gasoline can and did nothing, you'd not only be unloving, but you'd be irresponsible and grossly negligent. In fact, you'd be at least partially to blame if anything happened to the child. The same thing is true when we see a brother slipping back into a pattern of sin. We are to go to him and try to make him see the danger he's in. Then, if he doesn't listen, we're to take a witness or two with us and go again, taking others to confirm that what we say is true and to make sure that what is said is understood by everyone involved. Then, if he still won't listen, we are to tell it to the church. And the entire body is to become involved in trying to get the man to see the need for repentance in the matter. The entire resources of the church are to be called in to restore the one who has fallen. Then, if he doesn't respond to the ministry of the body, as a last resort, he is to be removed from the midst of the church. He is to be regarded as a Gentile and a tax gatherer and viewed as once again in need of redemption. 
is to be cut off from the kingdom of God. Delivered to the realm of Satan. He's to be kicked out of the church and sent back into the world. Now that is undoubtedly harsh action. But unless a person leaves the church before such action can be taken, and quite frankly, that's most often the case today, it is an action that must be taken in such circumstances if the church is to be faithful to the Scriptures. But now again, this excommunication is not the first course of action, nor is it the course of action that's to be taken when there's simply a disagreement in the church. You know, when, when you divide up into factions and you start kicking everybody out. That's not what we're talking about here. In fact, if we look closely at the situation the church was facing, I believe we can pick out several prerequisites that must be met before excommunication is even considered. First, this action cannot be based on rumors. It must be based on common knowledge. It must be a publicly known fact that the individual is involved in some sinful activity. It cannot be simply hearsay or rumor. The facts have to be known and readily known. We're not to form a gospel Gestapo to look for sin in each other's lives. But if it becomes public knowledge that a brother or sister is involved in unrepentant, sinful activity, discipline, even excommunication may become necessary. The second prerequisite I see is that the offense must be biblically recognized as sinful. It can't fall into the area of scruples such as, you know, smoking, moderate drinking, or gambling. It can't simply be not living up to some acceptable or expected standard of behavior in the congregation. It must be activity that is unquestionably and biblically labeled as sinful. And then, even beyond that, it must be an objectively observable sin. One that is obviously being committed. That means it can't be something like the beginning stages of envy or jealousy, even though such is biblically identified as sinful, because such things can't be seen. Now, if envy or jealousy is openly expressed through slander or something else that is identifiable, it must be dealt with. But some sins, while they are without question sins, are hard to discipline for because they're hard to see. Other sins, however, are readily identifiable. And that means flagrant sexual sin, illegal activities, and the like, are more readily subject to discipline than other sins. Now, that may seem unfair, you know, coming down on 
one type of sin more than another, especially since sin is sin. But quite frankly, the church is limited in its ability to see sin, and we are totally incapable of judging a man's heart or his motives. So the only thing a church really can act upon is sin that is evident. God will take care of the rest. But then you ask, if God is going to judge sin anyway, why is it necessary for the church to even get involved in discipline in the first place? In other words, what is the purpose for discipline? Let's back up and start again with verse 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now I see a twofold purpose for discipline in the church here. One is for the sake of the individual, and the other is for the good of the church. You know, God will judge unrepentant sin. And even a saved man can lose his salvation by turning his back on the grace of God and ceasing to trust Christ and his atoning death. And that is the reason we must discipline a sinning brother. It's not to punish him. He'll be punished if we do nothing and he doesn't repent. He'll be punished eternally. Now, the reason for discipline is to restore a brother or sister, to hopefully bring them back to their senses, back to a walk of faith and trust. Paul said the Corinthians were to deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, that is a problematic statement. And there's no way, really, to know for certain what Paul meant by delivering the man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. It's possible, and I think most likely, that he is saying that by cutting the man off from fellowship in the church and casting him back in the world, he'll realize the seriousness of sin in his life. He'll recognize what he's done and the consequences of what he's done and then once again be willing to crucify the flesh 
and its passions, which we as believers are called to do daily. Or he may be suggesting that some physical illness brought on by sinful behavior, or maybe even approaching death, will make him realize his need to repent. As I said, we really don't know what Paul meant by the specifics, but what is evident is that whatever Paul was telling them to do was to be done in the hopes that it would result in the man's eternal salvation. The discipline wasn't punitive, but redemptive in character. He was to be disciplined with the hope of his restoration. And that is the proper attitude to have when disciplining anyone, even our kids. We're not punishing them, making them pay for their sins, but trying to teach them, to restore them through discipline. And that is the first purpose for discipline, is to try to restore the one who has fallen. The second reason has to do with the church and is for the sake of the church. Paul reminds us that a little leaven, a little yeast, leavens the whole lump. He's saying that unchecked sin in the body spreads like cancer and must be cut out. By ignoring sin, the church actually appears to be condoning sin. And that can be all the encouragement some need to quit fighting it and give in to it. So the church must remove obvious sin from her midst to check its progression and to maintain her purity. The church has been washed. It's filled with men and women who have been forgiven. The stain of sin has been removed from their lives. The sacrificial lamb has been slain. And just as the Israelites would remove any trace of leavening, which was a symbol of evil, from their homes for the Passover, And for the Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed, we are to keep the church free from unrepentant, obvious sin that we might celebrate the feast with sincerity and truth. We are looking forward to the day when, as the Bride of Christ, we may be presented to Him without spot or blemish. Now, that doesn't mean that only perfect people are to be in the church, ones who never sin. But it does mean that the church is to be made up of forgiven people who are trusting Christ to keep them clean and are not rebelling against His Lordship by entering into unrepentant, willful sin.
a heavy message this morning. It comes from a passage that probably is overlooked most often. But it's one that is essential for us to read and understand. We must take sin seriously. Now, the good news is not good news if we don't also talk about the bad news that it addresses. You know, I don't, don't like to pound the pulpit, and I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. But we have to talk about sin, especially when it comes up in the text that we're studying. And I pray that what we've said here makes sense to you. We can keep it in balance, not overreact, but never become so arrogant that we think we should just overlook it. And that that's what God wants. That's not what He wants. We live in a society that doesn't want to call anything sin. They relabel every activity. Find an excuse for every behavior under the sun. And it's very unpopular and politically incorrect to talk about sin. Even in the church. That's what we need to talk about. You know, I don't think we need to be marching the streets telling people they're sinners out there. People who are living apart from Christ, they're free to live how they choose. It's not our place to get them in headlocks and try to change them. That's not our role. But it is essential that we as the body of Christ be what he's called us to be. We've got to be different. We've got to take seriously the need to live pure lives. We've got to be willing to call sin, sin. We've got to be able to do those things that are uncomfortable. If it means confronting a brother or a sister who's in danger of slipping back into a pattern of sin. Like I said, we're not, we're not to be the gospel Gestapo, you know, always looking over our shoulders and trying to pick something in our brother's life that we don't like. That's not the point. But when obvious unrepentant, sinful behavior is continuing in someone's life, we have an obligation to deal with it. Now, as I also mentioned, it's very, very hard to do this in the world today. I mean, even if there's the beginning stages of, of, of addressing sin in someone's life, the typical response today is to flee the church. But you can always find a church that will ignore it. Churches are always ready to welcome new members. And they don't want to hear bad reports from other churches. That's just a fact of life today. But we must not ignore what we're called to do. And make every attempt to maintain the purity in the church we've been called to maintain. So this morning, as we come to a commitment time, an invitation time, I 
I pray that we are committed to being a biblical church, one that that strives to maintain purity within our own lives and within the body as a whole. One that loves enough to do what's needed. And that even hurts. I pray we're committed to that, and thankfully we have been over the years. And I also would invite any who are looking for a church that's willing to Take a biblical stand against sin to identify with us and help us be what Christ has called us to be. And obviously, if there's anyone this morning who understands they have a need to be cleansed, we offer to them the opportunity to be washed and made clean and to become a part of a body that will do its best to help them maintain their walk of faith until the day when together we stand around the throne and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's stand.